Hello everyone, I'm Paris Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox, hosted by Richard Lummis. Hello, and welcome to another episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast about leadership. This is Richard Lummis. I'm here with Tom Fox for another discussion on how to improve our leadership skills. We believe leadership is a skill which can be improved with study of both good and bad practices and try to draw interesting examples from many sources, including history, fiction, film, and business writing. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you, Richard. Today we're going to go back and look at a topic we've discussed several times before, the fall from grace of General Electric, but from a slightly different vantage point. In an article in the May-June 2018 Harvard Business Review, and in the subsequent interview with Sarah Green Carmichael at the end of July, Roger Martin, who's the former dean of the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management and is currently the director of the university's Martin Prosperity Institute, identifies some new villains for us. He blames a toxic combination of clueless but deep-pocketed activist investors and mergers and acquisitions folks masquerading as strategists. He also has a slightly different take on the strategic mistakes made by GE and choosing targets for acquisitions. Specifically, his view of which acquisitions make sense and when is very different from the approach taken by GE under Welch and Emelt. Tom, using our 2020 hindsight and Mr. Martin's insights, what can we say about GE corporate governance and acquisition strategy here? So, uh, really interesting article, very interesting podcast, some interesting ideas, but frankly, uh, I guess what struck me was the lessons to be garnered from this, and I really did uh, find some. The um, But on the activist investor, here's what I really wanted to explore with you. Uh, you and I both uh, perhaps didn't grow up, but lived through the green mail time mm-hmm. and uh, were either directly or tangentially involved in some of those green mail attempts. Um, and is the activist investor... Just the um, distant cousin of the green mailer, and uh, if so, um, is it? Uh, are they closer in line to the short seller, um, who might be uh, go- taking things a different direction? Um, but clearly, uh, Martin is not fans of uh, the activist investor. Well, the green mail era was an interesting one because, to me, it involved the uh, suborning of treason on the part of corporate management. Uh, to pay off this investor with the shareholders' funds in order to keep their jobs. Um, that's over, overly simplistic, of course. There were lots of other uh, things going on then. But one of the things uh, Martin points out here is that these activist investors present themselves as having the long-term interest of the company at heart, when in fact uh, the median time of their investment is 432 days. So just over a year, um, and fewer than ten percent invest in for more than four years. In a previous podcast, we've talked about the Houston Astros, where a four-year time horizon was the minimum for for their rebuilding efforts. Um, and as Martin says, you simply cannot rebuild a company in four hundred thirty-two days. Uh, that's absolutely correct. And then uh, he goes on to say that what these activist investors are trying to achieve is an event. Yes. And once they achieve that event, the stock price will either dramatically go up or dramatically go down, which uh, then they cash out on. 
but it also is brought, uh, involved or uh, uh, turned on the really the story, the narrative, and that he feels like the activist investors have really been able to capture the storytelling part of this, the narrative that they are trying to unlock shareholder value, simply right. that. And that uh, I guess the lesson I would draw from this is uh, that you need to, uh, if, if you're attacked in this manner, uh, you need to seriously push back. Now, when I see companies push back, it tends to be on a, almost on a personal level. Uh, they attack the activist investor, uh, but I don't think uh, they've really used uh, this model of, as you uh, set out the 462 days on the average uh, holding of the stock and the, the length of time it takes to really impact uh, a corporation and to really emphasize to the corporation why long-term sustainable growth is in the interest of the shareholders and stakeholders as opposed to an event. Yeah. Well, the activist investor in the GM in the GE case is a hedge fund called Trion, which inv- invested uh, $2.5 billion in GE in October of 2015. Uh, they're not doing very well in that investment. But what Martin thinks is that they're not despite what he says about the event, they're not really evil, but they are clueless. Uh, The remedy they prescribed for GE was simply more of the toxic uh, strategic floundering and uh, focus on mergers and acquisition that they'd been engaging in for 20 years. Right. So, so, I mean, that, that comes back. So, that Martin says the problems were obvious at the end of the Welch era and that MLT inherited a company that was a bit of a mess and drastically overvalued. Now, I thought that was an interesting point because that's a real problem for uh, a CEO coming in. He's got to depart drastically from his predecessor's path, which has apparently been so successful. Right. And if he recognizes, if he even recognizes the overvaluation... How do you communicate that without just savaging your own stock? So um, I guess the the point I drew there was that he actually had some time to try to make some adjustments up until 2008. When 2008 hit the financial crisis, and that's when the true overvaluation was unmasked around GE Capital, and that he either didn't see, didn't want to see, or couldn't see the problems that GE Capital brought to the greater GE family. And um, so I guess I felt like Imalt had had some, to answer your specific question, had some time to try to to make a change, but either couldn't, wouldn't, or th- didn't think he should uh, change from this, the strategy going forward. Yeah. Uh, I'm just not sure how he could have done it without... Um, a revolt? Yeah. Um, and and dr- dramatically reducing shareholder value. I mean, not even value, it's just price at this point. It's not the value. But it's hard to distinguish between the two sometimes. Now, Martin says that a lot of it is a talent thing, by which he means that most CEOs don't know much about strategy. They come from an M&A background, or they, they have an MBA um, and then they hire as their head of strategy a guy from M&A or who has an MBA. And so M&A always seems like a good idea when you've got people, when that's what they're good at. Right. So in this case, it doesn't unlock shareholder value, but it's what you know how to do, so that's what you do. And 
when you look at it now, the announcement this summer is what they're going to do is more and bigger divestitures because the last ones haven't worked. Right. But it's just the same process. And so that leads Martin to a discussion of how do you get off that treadmill of one M&A giving you more M&A, and then you get to the M&A and D, with the D being divestitures, because now you recognize that the previous A's no longer fit the corporate <laughs> strategy. And so what you're doing is, is making the investment bankers rich and the shareholders poor. Um, but he says they were selecting their targets wrong, that they were selecting targets because they would bring growth to the company, um, where instead you had to pick targets for an acquisition where you're going to give it more value than you're actually getting from it, right. which I thought was a really interesting way to phrase it. Right, and that was, for me, the central, most interesting point of the uh, interview and uh, of the article. But the other, some of the other points you raised, uh, particularly around having a strategist as opposed to an M&A person, or he even went a step further, I thought, where he said uh, M&A people are very good at either buying or cutting costs. Yeah. And uh, really no in between. And so it made me really think about the corporate strategist and companies uh, having a corporate strategy function and uh, utilizing that a little bit more. On the, the purchase, the individual purchases of the company, uh, that uh, key insight that you gave us uh, was for me the same, that... Uh, you really unlock the value of an acquired company when you bring something to that company that increases its value. If you're purchasing it just to raise your number or raise your market share or raise your something um, and have that acquired entity bring to you, uh, you are probably doomed to failure. At least in Martin's eyes, you're going to be doomed to failure. And the strategy that GE... um, uh, if I could look at the energy division, because that's the one I have the most familiarity with, uh, it being here in Houston or a large part of it in Houston, up until the uh, Baker uh, acquisition, it seemed that the parts they were putting together um, complemented each other, and they were actually building an integrated uh, E&P service company through acquisitions. What they were bringing is putting together companies who could not put themselves together. Uh, they were basically acting as the financing to, to do that. Um, interestingly, uh, that strategy may have worked had Halliburton been able to ba- buy Baker Hughes. So, for instance, um, Halliburton's uh, drill bit division, SDBS, was going to be required to be divested because um, Hughes Drilling uh, still is the premier, I think, uh, drill bit company uh, in the world. And uh, so GE was going to get sort of to cherry pick certain parts of the Halliburton operation that they may have been able to integrate uh, more efficiently into GE oil and gas, but also uh, would not overlap with current existing units and the drill bit company being the best example I can point you to because they had no uh, presence in the drill bit industry uh, prior to that. Yeah. Well, the um, I mean, I, I think that's a great example. The um, and the other thing Martin emphasizes is that the uh, trying to achieve value by he calls it rejuggling a portfolio of businesses. I think rebalancing is probably a less pejorative term. 
But the idea does not come to mind that the problem is an uncompetitive value equation with customers. And he emphasizes, as a lot of our um, more farsighted uh, CEOs have done, that customers have to be first. And he said he specifically says employees second. Right. That was another uh, important insight, I thought, that uh, he was uh, trying to articulate how GE can make a comeback. And he said it's customers, 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 and it's employees, 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 and that you've got to get your customers uh, aligned with uh, uh, with you through your product offering, your service offering, the way you take care of them, uh, the way you do uh, financing, whatever it may be, with them, and that you have employees then uh, pay attention to your employees and align them in the same uh, manner. But um, to have uh, that's how you would. Uh, uh, begin to make the comeback. But before we get, uh, I did want to uh, speak about the Alstom mm-hmm. acquisition because we talked about that in the GE Success Theater podcast we did and the example that uh, the GE executives appended to Alstom refused to or were afraid to bring uh, any bad news or even bad projections to IMELT. Right. Uh, and that was uh, a, a huge problem. And that really, I thought, encapsulated a lot of the problems uh, with the Alstom as an acquisition, that it uh, uh, industrial turbines, they clearly had no idea about the market. They clearly had no idea how to market this product, service the customers, and they were going to do, quote, the GE way, end quote, whatever that might be. And that <clears throat> it turned out that the GE way was the emperor has no clothes. Yeah. And uh, they were just depending on Alstom, uh, who, who had been down for many years, frankly, uh, to turn that part of GE around, and it was never going to work. And then when you overlay that with the refusal to present accurate information to either the current CEO or then CEO and the board of directors, you had a true recipe for disaster. Well, and I think you have two different types of information here, uh, much as we discussed with the Astros. You have financial met- metrics, which are fairly hard, although they can be manipulated as well. But a lot of the other costs that are not readily quantifiable are one of the reasons these things are so destructive. And Martin points out that the biggest beneficiaries of these divestitures at GE are probably GE Healthcare's two biggest global competitors, Philips and Siemens. And that's because the GE executives are going to spend the next two years going carve-out audits, creating services and systems to replace the shared services, negotiating new stock-based compensation, and doing roadshows for investors, while Philips and Siemens will have the opportunity to focus on building their businesses. And, you know, that was another great insight as well. And what I had not fully appreciated, I appreciate the uh, acquisition costs, but I had not appreciated the divestiture. The, the, the distraction cost yes. is, is incredible. Yes, uh, as well. So, as uh, Martin leaves it, he says, good luck with that, GE and Trion. Um, Continuing to do the same thing that you've had bad results with, only do more of it, doesn't seem to be the recipe for fixing problems. And Richard, I I guess the uh, the last sort of takeaway I would have from this article that we use as a basis for this podcast was that this was... uh, I felt in many ways a very tactically focused article. Yet uh, I found multiple lessons for uh, senior leadership uh, from the strategic level, obviously to the tactical level. But in an article that I thoroughly enjoyed, uh, just uh, 
like I said, from the tactical perspective, uh, multiple leadership lessons as well. So um, it was a, a fun, uh, fun read and uh, fun to do for us. It is. And uh, I really enjoyed the article. I look forward to following up with GE over the next couple of years. Um, I hope it's more positive for them than Martin thinks, but uh, I have a feeling he may have identified some of the real long-term problems. For now, there's Richard Lummis and Tom Fox with 12 O'Clock High. This is Paris Fox again. We hope you enjoyed this episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox. If you enjoyed the show, please go to iTunes and rate the podcast. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.